If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. We're going back to the Galatians series we started uh, back in the fall semester. If you don't have a Bible but want to track with where we are, we're going to be on page 974 in the black Bibles that you'll see nearby. There are some under the chairs kind of spread around there. You can grab one of those, page 974, Galatians chapter 4. Uh, in this series, we've been uh, challenged by the Apostle Paul in his letter to Galatians that we should center our lives on God's grace. We should center our lives on the good news of Jesus, Jesus for us, rather than pushing forward for our own righteousness and for our own well-being in life, pushing forward our own plan, instead of that, trusting in God and what he provides for us in Jesus. And so that's been the challenge again and again, week after week. This week, as we look at chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, we're calling it Grace-Centered, And what Paul is going to do is some things he's already done earlier in the book. He's going to pull out how grace is really a whole Bible concept. Uh, It has always been about God's grace. God has always been a gracious God. That doesn't mean God doesn't judge sin, but God is also a gracious God. And that's always been the story. That's always been how he's operated. And so Paul is clearing this up because there are people who are experts in the Old Testament coming along saying, wait, Paul is messing it up. It's not enough to just trust Jesus. You also have to join our tribe, be a part of the way we do things as Jewish law keepers. And and Paul's saying, no, Jesus is enough. So we'll unpack this in verses 21 through 31. Um, Big idea is that we want to resist grace at every turn. But God's grace, is that's the one thing that's going to get us there. That's the one thing we really need. So verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let me pray for us uh, and ask God to teach us this morning. God, we ask for your help. Um, there's a lot of complicated stuff here. We pray that you'd help us to to listen, to focus, to hear what you're saying to us. Um, God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you're a gracious God, a kind God, and we pray that we would be uh, open to you. We pray that you'd give us hearts and minds uh, to be open to all that you have for us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a week or two ago, pretty recently, Um, my son had been doing some vacuuming around the house, cleaning up some stuff, good kid. Uh, And just like an hour later, my wife grabbed the vacuum, plugged it in, pushed the button, and nothing happened. 
And, you know, if, if your boy has been using something and it doesn't seem to work, you might be suspicious that he broke it, right? Um, and I've, this is kind of an aside, but I want to share this for you mothers out there. I do, I'm still committed to the idea that it's important for little boys to break things because that's how they learn to be men that can fix things. So moms, I just want to encourage you with that. Um, don't be too hard on your little boys, okay? It's called, it's called the utility of the male. It's an important part of the growing up process. Boys need to break lots of things, okay? So anyway, back to my son. We, we grabbed the vacuum cleaner. My wife was like, hey, can you check this? It's not working. She pushed the button. Nothing's happening. I was like, well, maybe the plug's out, and I moved it to the other plug. Well, it still wasn't working. And then I realized, oh, wait, these are on the same circuit, these two plugs. So I moved it to another, a third plug, and it worked, right? So it wasn't my son. He had not broken the vacuum cleaner. It was just the power, right? The circuit had been blown on the outlet. And so we didn't have the electricity that the vacuum cleaner needs to work. And what I want to propose to you is that there's a contrast in probably all of your homes. You have two of these items that we have. Most of you probably have a vacuum cleaner that needs electricity. It needs power. And most of you have a broom that just needs you, right? Just needs your flesh, your arm for it to work. And Paul is giving us a similar contrast here in the text. He's saying there's a way that is relying on God's power, that's one way to live, and there's another way of living life that is relying on your own flesh and your own strength. And what I would argue with you this morning is the only way to see real change in your life, the only way to live at peace with God and who he is, the only way to have real love for the people around you is to rely on God's supernatural power to change you. That's the only way anything's gonna change in our life. And Paul's hitting it here. He's been hitting it in the rest of Galatians that we saw last semester. He's going to keep hitting it. We need to trust God. God's grace is his kindness towards us that we do not deserve. That the big story of the Bible is that we deserve his wrath for our sin and rebellion. But God poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus. That Jesus on the cross absorbed the wrath of God so that if we trust in what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross, not only are our sins forgiven, and punished on the cross, but the righteousness of Jesus is given to us. So by faith, trusting in the promise of God, we're seen as righteous. We're adopted into his family. We're loved as one of his very own. We're delighted in by God. I I want you to know that kind of relationship with God. I want you to know that kind of peace with God, which is a supernatural thing that can only happen because of the power of God. It can only happen because of the grace of God of God. Paul starts out in this text this morning telling us that grace is old. It's not a new idea. And that's important for us to know because that helps us to not be susceptible to some other false teachers running through town saying, hey, wait, what about this in the Old Testament? And that's what was happening here. Probably a lot of you are are reading your Old Testament. It's January. That's the time when we all read our Bibles, right? The month of January. And uh, and so you might be seeing crazy stuff in the Old Testament. And you're thinking, whoa, that's, you know, that's nuts. How do, what do I do with that? How do I make sense of that? Um, and what Paul is saying is grace has always been how God saves people. Grace has always been how God puts people in a right relationship with him. Grace has always been God's supernatural power to change the world. It's old. It's old. It's not a new thing. It's not something that just came out with Jesus, but it's something that was made more clear, more explicit in Jesus. You see the difference? So I, I, would, I would say, along with you, if you read your Old Testament and your New Testament, grace is more obvious in the New Testament, but grace was always there. It's old. It was in the Old Testament. He talks in verse 21 
Look back at our text. Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. So he says, okay, there are people coming in that want to be under the law, and they're luring you who are not Jews to want to be under the law also. Have you actually listened to what the law says? That's his challenge. He's saying that actually in the law, it says the law is not enough to save you. You need grace. That's Paul's argument. He's, he said that before. We've kind of covered that territory. Law, the word itself, can be used in a few different ways. Look in verse 21. He's using it in two ways right here, right? One way is wanting to be under the law. And so that's seeing law as a system to save you, right? That is the Judaizers, these Jewish false teachers, coming to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish Christians, and saying, it's not enough to just trust Jesus. You also have to keep all the commands of the Mosaic Covenant. You have to live like a Jew. You have to take on Jewish culture as well as the Jewish Messiah. Paul says, no, just trust the Jewish Messiah. You don't have to take on all the cultural baggage. You don't have to keep all of these regulations as well. And so what he's saying is that's being under the law. That's relying on the law to save you. That's different than this big idea, he says, of something written in the law, right? He says, do not listen to the law, for it is written. So he's saying you can use the word law also in a sense of just the Old Testament. So there are various ways that the word law, which just means God's instruction, that's literally what the word means, there's various ways the word is used. And so this is just a a Bible study tip. When you're reading your Bible, don't have like a wooden dictionary, you know, number one definition idea in your head whenever you read a word. You have to be flexible. Any of you ever uh, looked up a word in the dictionary and you've noticed there's like three or four or five definitions? Have you ever noticed that before? And probably for those of you that are purists, kind of black and white thinkers, it probably makes you angry inside, right? You're like, hey, that's not fair. There should just be one definition. I would agree with you. It would be simpler if there was just one definition for everything, but that's not really how language works. Language, it's usually kind of like we use it in this context this way, in this context that way. So just be aware of that. When you're defining a word, you have to define it in context. How is Paul meaning it here? Well, Paul's meaning in one place in this verse, you're under the law as a way to save you. Then the other place, he's talking about the Old Testament. Two ways he's using the word. So, so that's, that's a little aside. And then he clarifies that the law actually describes that there are two ways to live. And we'll get into those details a little bit more in the as we move through into the next point. But what I want you to think about for just a second is our cultural, um, our cultural disposition of being suspicious of old things. Uh, we live in kind of what I often describe as a, as a youth cult, uh, where we worship being young, we worship vitality, we worship avoiding aging, avoiding appearing like you're old, right? And I'm, I'm just going to say I, I struggle with that too, so I'm not condemning you, okay? We all... That's part of the cult that we all struggle with in our culture. And so we're suspicious of old things. And the the Bible actually says old things are good. And grace has always been God's plan. And it's old. It's always been the way things are. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So I encourage you to look for this when you're reading your Old Testament right now. I found this picture of old books. And probably there's two different postures you have when you see an attic full of old books. One of you thinks, ooh, gross, Right? And then another is like, wow, look at all those old books, right? There's kind of two different postures you have. I was just talking to a friend who found these, these uh, antique law textbooks in somebody's attic, and he was so excited, and they were on a shelf. And I was like, wow, those are beautiful, you know, these old, antique, well-bound books. And so 
we can sometimes find an old treasure in an unexpected place. And I want to encourage you that the Old Testament is like that. So some of you might have the concept of, oh, it's dusty, it's going to make me sneeze, I don't want to go there, right? But I want to encourage you that there are treasures to be had in the Old Testament. Namely, it's consistent with the New Testament. It's all about a God who is graciously saving people. It's all about a, a God who, despite our sin, continues to run after us and pursues us in love. And it syncs up perfectly with this New Testament where we're, we're shown Jesus is that Savior we've been waiting for. He's the one that makes it all make sense that somehow God is absolutely demanding of holiness from us, but also kind and gracious towards us. Those two things can't be true unless Jesus is real. And so I want to encourage you that you can find that same kind of hope reading your Old Testament. So it's January, we're reading Genesis. Check it out. Look for it. Hunt for it. In the book of Genesis, you'll find stories like he's about to tell us about Abraham, where we're shown that people on their own are sinners that wander from the truth, but with God's intervention, we can be saved, we can be redeemed, we can live in hope. We can trust God to, to help change our lives, to make things different. We don't want things to be the same way they are. We, we want to have hope. We want God to change us. And you can find that even in the Old Testament. So grace is not a new idea. It's, a, it's an old idea. So I encourage you to, to read the Old Testament, hunt for these places that show us that God is, is gracious. Look for them. Search them out. Hebrews 11 is a great summary of the Old Testament that says, you know what? All these Old Testament heroes, they weren't really heroes because they were so perfect, right? Which... When you read Genesis, you'll be shocked. There are a lot of bad people, okay? They weren't perfect, but they trusted God. They had faith. That's what stands out. That's the theme that should uh, challenge your heart when you read the Old Testament in the new year. The next thing that Paul's going to start to unpack is that grace is actually what gives us life, okay? So he says, okay, grace is in the Old Testament. The story about Abraham unpacks it for us. There's two ways to live. There's one way to live that is... Uh, kills life, that puts you in slavery, that makes you not free. And then there's this other way to live that leads you by God's spirit, that's supernatural, that is a way of trust and is life-giving, helps you to be fruitful, helps you to be productive. So we see this in verse 24 through 27. If you'll look with me, it says in verse 24, now, now this may be interpreted allegorically. So there's two, let's back up to 23. I shouldn't have jumped to 24. 23. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. The Jerusalem above, just so you know, he's talking about heaven. That's what he means, the place God dwells. So he's saying there's an earthly Jerusalem where people hung Jesus on a cross, rejected his lordship, think that they can earn their way to heaven. And then there's a heavenly Jerusalem where God graciously gives us salvation because of his kindness, not because of anything that we did on our own. And Paul says this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. There's always been two ways to live. So I encourage you this week, if you're studying this in your small groups or even just reading this on your own, I'd encourage you to, to chart this out because it's a little complex, right? So first of all, we have the story. The story is God promises Abraham that you're going to have children and you're going to bless the whole world. Problem is Abraham and Sarah are really, really old and they're not having children. It's not happening, 
right? And so Abraham begins to doubt that God's really going to do this. God's made this promise. It's not happening. And so Abraham and Sarah work out a deal which is culturally appropriate. Now, it's a violation of God's commands because God makes it clear in Genesis 2.24 that his plan for marriage is permanent, one man, one woman for life, right? That's God's plan. Uh, That's clearly the, the biblical morality of Scripture. But we often see Old Testament characters do what was normal in their culture. Just like today, we often see people that call themselves Christians do things that aren't Christian because our culture says it's okay. So you need to discern those two things, right? So Abraham and Sarah decide to do what's culturally normal. He takes on Sarah's maid, her slave girl, and he has a child with her. So he basically takes a second wife, which again, we would say not God's plan just because something happens in the Bible doesn't mean God is saying, go imitate them, right? Again, if you're reading Genesis, you'll see that real clearly. It'll jump out. If you read the whole book of Genesis, there's all these patriarchs that you should not imitate, okay? (laughs) Do not do what they do, but try to have the faith that they have in a gracious God. Okay, so we, we see this story. They decide God's not fulfilling his promise for children, so we'll do the normal cultural thing, take a second wife, have a kid. That's what they do. So that's who Hagar is. She's the maid, the slave girl. They have a child through her. Child's name is Ishmael. And what Paul's saying is, you know what? He ended up being a child of slavery, and the promise didn't come through him because God later fulfilled the promise. He waited even longer even you know, more time passed, it seemed even more impossible that God could fulfill his promise. And then he gave them a supernatural baby named Isaac. The word Isaac means laughter, right women? If you had a baby when you were 100, you'd probably laugh too or cry. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's this supernatural birth. And Paul's saying, you can take this story allegorically. Now another aside, taking a story allegorically doesn't mean it's not true. That just means it can, it can symbolize God's dealings with people. So we would say this was a true story, and it symbolizes how God works with people. That God is a God of promise, and when he promises something to someone, he's going to fulfill it. And you don't have to go fulfill it on your own. You can trust him. So let's chart that out. So we've got slave over here, right? And we've got free over here. We've got Hagar, the maid, over here. And we've got Sarah, the one who's way too old to have a baby, over here. Uh, We've got the idea of grace and trusting in God's promises over here. And we've got the idea of flesh over here. Wait, I switched that. We've got the idea of flesh over here with the slave woman, right? And we've got the idea of trusting in God's promises over here. So there's this whole list of contrasts and several more that you could chart out. Like I said, the earthly Jerusalem where they killed Jesus and the heavenly Jerusalem where God really lives, right? The earthly Jerusalem is supposed to be a picture of that. But we know through the history of the Bible, they didn't always obey God and give us the picture that they're supposed to give. Just like the church is supposed to be a picture of God's love, we don't always do that well. So Paul's saying, in heaven, that's the real Jerusalem, and that's our mother. That's our mother. And what I want you to see that's so beautiful, and I believe life-giving here, is Paul is speaking to people who are outsiders. People like you and me, that maybe didn't grow up in the right neighborhood, that maybe didn't have all their stuff together, that maybe made some mistakes that you're embarrassed of, Maybe did some things that keep you up late at night because you're ashamed of them and you think, man, how did, I, how did I blow it like that again? Why did I do that? How can God create anything out of this mess that is my life? And the gospel comes to these people. They're, they're called the Galatians, but, but people like you and me. And he says, I'm going to make you a member of my household. God says, I'm going to adopt you and love you and make you mine because of my grace. 
not because of anything you've done. And so Paul does this jujitsu thing here, right? Where he flips them. The, the Jews are saying, it's not enough for you to just trust Jesus. You have to join our tribe. Paul says, well, actually, exactly the opposite. By thinking that you can earn God's favor because of your flesh and what you can accomplish, you show that you're not a real Jew. You're, you're a part of the Ishmaelites. You're a part of the wrong tribe. And, and Paul flips it around on them. So those of us that think we can save ourselves, we end up becoming slaves. And those of us that say, I can't do it. God, I can't do it. We're set free. We're given hope. We're given salvation in Jesus. Th- think about how this works out in, in your, your daily life, because this is a common thing we struggle with, right? Um, I was thinking about job interviews uh, or a date, right? You're trying to put your best foot forward. It's been, you know, 25 years since I went on a date, but I can kind of remember that idea. Um, but job interview might be a better idea. I have a picture here. Here's a job interview. Some people grilling someone. They're being interviewed. How many of you have ever, I know not everybody gets a job through interviewing. How many of you have been in a job interview? Raise your hand if you've done that. Okay, a lot of you have. And it, you, can, you can be nervous, right? Because you want the job. Uh, we don't generally interview for terrible jobs we don't want. Usually, we want the job, or at least we want the paycheck, right? And so you might be a little nervous, and you're thinking, man, I, th- I hope they think I'm good enough. And you're trying to be approved of, right? You're, you, you want them to see you as, as whole and as valuable and as useful. Uh, and what Paul is saying here is these Judaizers are coming to you, and they're whispering in your ear that we can get you on the right track so that God will hire you, Right? so that God will want you on your team. Because God really doesn't want you dirty Gentiles that aren't true Jews. He doesn't really want you. You're in the wrong tribe. But if you go through all the steps, if you do all the regulations, if you take on the Levitical code, if you take on all the baggage of our Jewish culture, then in your flesh, you can prove that you're good enough. You can demonstrate that you're valuable to God. Then God will pick you for his team. Paul says that's exactly the opposite of how it works. The gospel is that uh, the job interview is rigged, right? Like Jesus went in ahead of time and Jesus got you hired before you ever showed up. Jesus was enough for you. As I said before, the cross, the message of the cross is that all our sin was placed on Jesus and all of Jesus' righteousness was given to us so that when we walk into the job interview, he's like, yeah, I want you. You're on my team. Jesus Jesus bought you. You're on Jesus' team. You're you're a part of what I'm going to do in the world. And it's not because we impressed him so much in the job interview. It's, it's because of what Jesus has done for us. Grace gives us real life. The, the irony is that we, we think if we work even harder and do more right things, then we can change in the new year. And, and grace flips that around and grace says, the only way you'll do more right things is you recognize your own brokenness. Right? The only way that you'll begin to work harder is you recognize that you're loved. That's what actually excites you about following what God has to say. Because if, if it's all up to you and you're just working harder to get your foot in the door and you're just working harder to get this God that really doesn't like you to like you, it's never going to work out. Mike Harris, one of our elders, talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago. He talked about how you change. Looked at Titus chapter 3 talked about the idea that it's, it's really falling more in love with Jesus. So much so that the sin you're depending on to save you now becomes less enticing. 
the more you recognize God's grace towards you, the more you'll actually begin to change. You'll actually begin to do what's right. Jesus shared a parable of this, a parable of two sons in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus says, okay, there's, there's two sons. And the father comes up to the first son and says, hey, will you go work in the vineyard? And the son says, oh, yes, father, I will, because I'm a good son and I love to please you. And he goes and doesn't do the father's will. And then the second son, the father asks him, and, and the son's like, yeah, dad, whatever, I don't have time for you. I'm not going to do what you want. And he walks off. But then he feels bad, and he changes his mind, and he starts doing what the father asked him. And Jesus asked this simple question, who did the father's will? Who did the father's will? Jesus gave this uh, parable to show that the prostitutes and sinners are going to enter the kingdom of heaven ahead of the religious people, ahead of the people who say to God, oh, yeah, 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 I'm going to do your will. I'm going to do everything you say. But in our heart, we, we don't really love God. Only grace can break our heart. So we really love him. So, so we're actually in love with Jesus and we want to do what he says. You see, nobody universally, humans generally, we don't want to do what God says. We think we know what's best. And so because we don't really want to do what God says, we kind of think out two ways to live. One is to run as hard and as fast as we can in the opposite direction. We call that sin, rebellion, doing our own thing, trying to save ourselves through our own addictions. That's one way to try to save ourselves. The other way to try to save ourselves is to pretend that we're pleasing God, is, is to shrink down his expectations to, to a manageable list and begin wearing a mask and pre- pretending that we're religious enough to win God's favor. Paul says it's, it's always been by God's grace. That's always been the only way that you can have life. He goes on and he quotes Isaiah 54. Look at verse 26. In verse 26, he says, The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, right? We're a part of this family. Verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And so this is a promise in the prophecy of Isaiah to the people that have been exiled, right? The Jews were disobedient, and so God scattered them in exile. This is a promise God is giving to them that that someday you're going to get your stuff together, right? And he's saying, someday this is going to happen. Because of my grace, you're going to actually be productive. You're going to be fruitful. And the woman who has no children will be fruitful. And God here is talking about a spiritual fruitfulness. He talks later on in Isaiah to eunuchs, to, to men who are unproductive and unfruitful. He says, you'll be fruitful too, a supernatural fruitfulness. You'll have real life. You'll give life to those around you. You'll you'll actually obey God's will and you'll bless others. You'll love other people. You'll love God. You'll live life the way life is supposed to be lived. He says this will happen, but it will happen supernaturally. So the the challenge of us or the challenge to us is to trust in this life-giving grace that God offers. Will we continue to think that we can do it on our own? Or will we trust that God loves us? And I just, I want to share with you, because I think a lot of people have the wrong idea that because I'm up here preaching, that I've got my stuff together, right? And I want to I reassure you that the only reason I get out of bed in the morning is because God, God loves me. Like, there's too many other things to worry about. I, I don't get out of bed in the morning because I'm loved by other people. 
I don't get out of bed in the morning because I'm so successful. I don't get out of bed in the morning because uh, my life is in order. I don't get out of bed in the morning because I have people's respect or I have a lot of money in the bank. I get out of bed in the morning because God loves me. I hope that's your reason as well. Matter of fact, I would plead with you to make that your reason. Because as long as you're getting out of bed for these other reasons, you're not relying on God's grace for you. You're not relying on his supernatural life that he wants to give you. I'm not saying we, we do that perfectly every day, but the only way we'll know real power, the only way we'll know real life is beginning more and more to trust him. Recognize that he's made me his. He's adopted me. He loves me. Even if everyone else has abandoned me, God loves me. He's put me in his family. So again, just before we move on to the next section, I want you to see that he's, he's saying that there's a way of slavery and there's a way of freedom. And it's actually completely flipped from how the world would describe it. It's completely opposite. The way we think we'll find freedom, indulging our flesh, following our own passions, actually leads to slavery. And the way we'll, we will find freedom is submitting ourselves to God and trusting in Him. The last thing I want us to see here is that grace is personal. He makes this very personal. So we've talked about the, the concept of grace, right? You can't earn your way into God's favor. You can't impress God enough, be righteous enough to win his approval. But Jesus can for you. That's grace. That's living in dependence on the promise rather than on your own flesh and strength and what you can do. And here he says, you know what? This is personal. Though this, this is ground level. This is local. Look at verse 28. He says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You are these same kinds of children. So he has to reassure them, right? He's writing to the Galatians. The Galatians are the wrong kinds of people. They're the wrong ethne. They're, they're the wrong ethnic group, the wrong nation, the wrong tribe. So for those of us, any of you that have ever felt like I'm not, this, I don't have the right family, I don't have uh, the right resume, I don't have the right education, I didn't grow up in the right neighborhood, Paul's talking to those kinds of people. And he's saying, you're actually the, the chosen ones. You're the ones that God has put on his team. You're the ones that, that God has said, I want you, I love you. Because it's nothing that you've done by your own strength. It's what I've done by my grace. So Paul here says, those of you that aren't genetically Jewish are actually the real sons of Isaac. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And here he's not making comments on uh, slavery, right? We would see the Scriptures generally pro-freedom. What he's saying here is these people that want you to be enslaved to their religious system need to be cast out because you're free. Jesus is enough. So he's talking to the Galatians, talking to people like you who predominantly, we're not Jews, right? We're of the wrong race. Most of us, we're a lot of different races here, but we're of the wrong race in the Judaizer's mind. And he's saying, it's enough to be on Jesus' team. That puts you in God's family. That was God's plan all along for the Jews was to bless all the nations of the world. That was the original promise that he made to Abraham. He says, you're, you're in my family. 
It's personal. This is for you. I have a family picture here. You, you like to go to people's house and look at their old family pictures? You enjoy doing that? No? None of you? Okay. I do. All right, I'm all alone here. Or maybe this is more fun, like rifling through their drawers, just checking out their personal effects. Okay. <laughs> See, the, you like that? Okay. Here's a family picture. Uh, this is Blue Bonnet. So this, I'm trying to kind of educate you at the same time because I know a lot of you are not from Central Texas. Uh, so while you're here for a couple of years, you need to go have your pictures taken in front of Blue Bonnets. And you get extra points. Notice they have a cool uh, wooden fence in the background. You get, get extra points for that kind of stuff or a nice oak tree. Um, but this is something we like to do in Central Texas. Go have your family picture taken in the Blue Bonnets. What I want you to understand here is, is God is saying, you're in my family picture. You're in my family because of what I did for you through Jesus, not because of anything you can accomplish. You're mine. You belong to me. I love you. If you're trusting in what Jesus has done for you, God delights in you. He sees you as beautiful. He sees you as his and that gives us real life. Like we said before, that actually sets us free. It, it's beginning to be personal now, right? That's, that's the way we're actually going to change and live a life of, of love and live a life of grace for others. Now, another side of this, I just thought of this earlier when I was looking at the picture. When you go have your pictures taken in blue bonnets, sometimes hard things will happen, okay? Now, this might sound like a stretch, but probably you'll get bitten by fire ants when you go to have your picture taken. And so there's beauty, right? You're in the family. Beautiful things are happening, but there's persecution too. And that, that's what he's saying here. That might have been a stretch, but it's in the verse here. Look, <laughs> look at verse 29. So 28, he says, you brothers are children of the promise. And 29, he says, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. So, so those who are depending on their flesh will always persecute those who are trusting in God's grace. And so we have to resist that. That's why he threw in the cast out thing there, right? It sounds, sounds mean. He's saying, so cast out the slave. What he's saying is we can't tolerate that in our community. We can't tolerate in our community false teachers coming in saying, you're not enough. You can't trust uh, Jesus and be okay. You've got to take on all these external regulations as well. You've got to change your culture and become like us. And then maybe God will love you. And Paul says that's antithetical to who our community is and to what we believe. In our community, we believe God loves people from all different backgrounds, and he loves these people because of what Jesus has done, not because of how perfect we are. Now, in that community, that means we're all now going to begin trying to do what God says, right? We want to live righteously because now we have new hearts and we actually trust God. Whereas before, we just thought, he was an ogre. He was trying to ruin all our fun. Now we see through the concept of grace, through the personal application of, of the Spirit, embracing our hearts, showing us that God is good and He's kind and He loves us and He wants us in His family. Now our hearts are melted. We want to do what He says. We want to begin following Him. But that following Him is not what gets us in the door. What gets us in the door is what Jesus has done for us, His grace. His promise, and that promise begins then to change us. That begins to transform our lives, and persecution sometimes will be a part of it. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
So Jesus is saying, the world hated me, and it'll hate you too. So everything's not going to be rosy. Everything's not going to be perfect. But if, if you follow him, it's, it's going to be good. I kind of have this picture of being in, in God's family, and there's really kind of two aspects, I think, that are helpful to think about of God's fatherhood, right? His love for us. One aspect is, is the assurance of that love. You know, just the feeling of, I belong to him. I'm on his team. He loves me. He wants me to be with him. The other aspect is, he's going to ask hard things of me. He's going to ask hard things of me. And, and God's going to do the same with you. He loves you. He absolutely loves you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that he has for us in Christ Jesus. But then he's going to ask hard things of you. It's part of being in a family. So here we see persecution. And no, it's not fun. The, this world is broken. It's not the way things are supposed to be. But, but we get to have a taste of what God is doing in the world. We get to be involved in our daddy's business as he asks hard things of us. That might involve persecution, but we're looking forward to that heavenly Jerusalem, our true home, where everything's going to be made right, where everything's going to be sewn up and pulled together the way it's supposed to be. So I want to encourage you that it's worth it. It's worth it to follow him. We're not following him for the short term. We're not following him to have our best life now. We're following him because he's worth it. And he's going to work it out in the end for us. Let me pray for us and we'll sing one final song together. God, we thank you that you love us and you've shown us your grace. We pray that it would transform our hearts so that we would be a people that live in this new way. That we would be the children uh, who even though we said no the first time, we didn't want to do what you said. Now uh, we've changed. You're transforming us. You're making us new. God, we pray that you'd give us life. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for what you did for us through Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen.